sky high, everything you buy. The new Jacobin issue, all about inflation, is out now. Contributors such as Samir Santi, our own Doug Henwood, and many others explore the issue of inflation, how its management reflects political choices and class interests, the related history of privatization and the commodification of public goods, and how to fight inflation in a way that puts the needs of people before capital. You can get a year-long print subscription, including the new issue, for just $20 by going to bit.ly slash jacobinradio. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Jacobin Radio. Thanks. Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan here as always with Kale Brooks. Uh, Kale, what is new with you and what do we have on today's show? Uh, nothing is new. I'm just same old. Everything's it's fine. No, things are good. Um, good. Things are especially good because on today's show, oh my god, we got Maddie B, Polly P, and MC Santi. Coming at you fucking hard and live. It's actually not live, but we're coming at you hard. Uh, this is a fucking stacked episode. Um, I don't know if I should say the F word like a minute in, but um, we got... It's a good episode. It's it's really good. Yeah. You guys want to talk about, uh, you know, taxes and child care? Oh, we got that with Maddie B. We, you want to talk about, about the, the rail strike? strike? Oh, Oh, Jen, we got that one. We got that one coming at you fucking <laughs> hard. God damn it. Well, it's okay. Paul, Paul's with us as always. Paul's, uh, Flavor Paul is back. What else yeah, is so new? You'll, you'll know everything that's going on with the rail strike. Um, and, uh, Samir Santi is also going to finally explain what the Fed is and what it's doing. And could it ever actually be good? Um, maybe you'll maybe, find out. Maybe. Yeah. Stay tuned. Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to all of those people. Uh, but first, I want to talk to you, Kale, about a new Pew study that has come out. Uh, the title of the study is Modest Declines in Positive Views of Socialism and Capitalism in the U.S. Yeah, so, a bit of a mixed uh, bag. A little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, and I should point out that Pew runs this study every few years where they pull people on their feelings about socialism and capitalism. And I do want to mention, uh, for those of you who have been watching the show for a while, you might remember that I've done a segment in the past where I kind of look at some of these studies and, uh, and, and I have some thoughts on what we should take away from them. Uh, but but maybe I'll open it up to you first, Kale. Uh, you know, we we passed the study around. What do you think of it? What was interesting? What stood out to you? Right. Well, so the the big headline is the fact that the positive rating for capitalism dipped mm-hmm. from sixty five percent. Sixty five percent of people say they have a positive opinion down to fifty seven. Whereas for socialism, it went from forty two percent as the higher uh, mark in uh, May twenty nineteen down to thirty six percent. Uh, mm-hmm. just last month. Um, so there, in some ways, it's just objectively like 
not great news. But at the same time, I think it's worth just trying to understand, like, what does that even mean? Like, what do people mean when they say they support capitalism versus when they say they support socialism? Because if you ask, like, one of us or one of our guests or people who just do politics for a living where we have a very, like, specific definition, um, even if it's expansive, but it's, like, we're talking about very specific things and it's usually has to do with, like, social structures um, it has to do with like the organization of the economy and like how wealth is distributed, how wealth is created, things like that. Whereas like the way that these people are defining it in this poll, it seems um, it's not it's not in those terms, right? So that it's basically, and I'm uh, you know paraphrasing basically, but that capitalism is basically equal to the uh, freedom, freedom of choice of um, freedom of individuals to be able to do. Um, pursue things, uh, mm-hmm. an opportunity, things like that. Whereas socialism is roughly understood in the sense of like security, that it's um, it's a society that provides uh, basic needs for you. Um, and so with that being said, I do think there's some of like the interesting facts about the study are kind of in how that, like how those perceptions have changed over time. And part of it is that um, basically Republicans are not really contributing at all to this change, that most of the actual change in um, uh, an approach to do you support capitalism or socialism is actually among liberals and Democrats and to some extent independents. Mm-hmm. Um, Republicans are just kind of locked in. They're fine with their choices, I guess. Um, but they hate socialism. They think right. capitalism is yeah. great. Um, and uh, broadly, I mean, I, I mean, again, it's always interesting because it's not monolithic, but, mm-hmm. um, but it is something that's happening within let's say basically the democratic party right. um that uh there's uh, which is an interesting phenomena insofar as like given the context of the last 3 years given the fact that um in that time there's been the build back better fight there's been the right. pandemic and covid mm-hmm. and there's also been the bernie Sa- the second bernie sanders campaign right. um i do think uh one way to understand this and Look, if you disagree, that's fine. But uh, my my understanding of this is less about people rejecting needing material security, like mm-hmm. like rejecting wanting health care. Because when you actually do surveys on the issues, mm-hmm. the top issues for everyone is like economic security, health care, right. uh, wage, wage increases, things like that. Like that's always the priority for most people mm-hmm. um, of what would make their lives better. So I think it's not that they're rejecting that. They're not rejecting like those things that would satisfy their material interests, it's actually they are rejecting kind of the optimistic, like we could have a better world. There could be a society where we actually take care of each other. And they've witnessed through the last few years, oh, when we wish for that, when we want that, when we fight for that even, when we organize for that, uh, we get stomped on, we lose. And like, even though a lot of people will get back up and keep fighting, um, it sucks to lose. So... Mm -hmm. That that's my take, and maybe I'm being a little. I'm like, kind of. Well, well, I, I, I okay. So I have two things. I have two things to add to that. The first one, which you sort of touched on, uh, and and I think this came up when I you know did my segment last year or whatever. Uh, and this this is something that Pew actually addressed head on when they conducted this same survey in 2019. Is that uh, I mean, as you pointed out, nobody really has the same definition of socialism or capitalism. Not just that we have, but like. Like if you ask 10 people to define socialism or 10 people to define capitalism, you would get 10 different answers each time. Right. Uh, So, you know, that I think introduces 
that I think is probably the main reason why, like, all things considered, we should sort of take these surveys with like a little grain of salt. Um, But that, that said, I also want to mention that something that stood out to me in this essay, or sorry, in this report is, um, again, when you're looking at people who identify as Democrats, the age group of like 18 to 29 year olds is surprise, surprise, the age group that favors socialism way more than they favor capitalism. I think the split is something like 60% of Democrats in that age range say they approve of socialism compared to like 30% of people in that age range who say they approve of capitalism. Uh, and, and you know, I, I, I want to stay on this topic for a second because I don't think it's just that they're young and idealistic. I think that there are a couple of interesting things going on here. One is that none of these people were alive during the Cold War, right? So like they got to miss out uh, or or, you know, they got to bypass kind of a very intense period of anti-communist and anti-socialist propaganda. Uh, And the Cold War, I mean, you know, obviously the right still tries to foment like accusations of socialism and and tries to do a little red scare now and again. But I just think that it's mostly defanged, quite honestly. So there's that. Um, And the second thing is like, that these this is a cohort that hasn't really been alive to see anything other than neoliberalism in total decay right, right? so like i think there's some statistic that uh, you know, Gen, Gen X is the last generation for whom a college degree like actually paid off. Since then, you know, it's just been like mountains of student debt, uh, you know, wages and productivity obviously have been sort of separated for decades, but have really intensified uh, post Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I mean, I, I don't think that those are insignificant factors, uh, despite all of the confusion around what is actually socialism or what is actually capitalism. Like, it seems to make a lot of sense to me that this particular age cohort would be more amenable to socialism. But um, it's not my right. age cohort. It's yours. So what are your thoughts? Again, I, I think that's disputable, actually. Um, it depends on how they measure these things. But um, uh, yeah, Gen, Gen Z socialism, um, also known as socialism. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, what you're touching on is the fact that, um, and it has to do with like the kind of the uh, generational differences here too um that when they do this survey like again these are like very ideological terms like these are like not concrete things that they're contrasting um Mm -hmm. but and you can kind of factor this into the survey but in a broader sense of course like people actually today live in capitalism and when you actually ask them about like their living conditions their stand you know like what they expect in life where like they're going like are they, you know, are they making ends meet? Um, do they have time to do what they want to do and spend time with people they love and care about and pursue interests? Um, most people basically say like, no, like this is like, we're not, I'm getting a raw deal. Like it's, this is clearly not like working for me, but like, I, I can only imagine this getting worse because that's how the last few decades have been. Like things just keep getting worse. So um, there is this kind of like, almost kind of backwards looking, like trying to look out for yourself, safety first kind of approach to these things. Um, But again, obviously, like socialism doesn't exist. And like, 
at least like you know what, what if you want to get like really fucking oh that that little commune over there and you know whatever I'm, but the point is that like basically it doesn't exist and yeah. it's not something that people can actually contrast it's the same thing with like healthcare that like they're contrasting when you ask like do you support medicare for all it's like they're contrasting the actual healthcare system they're in versus like the idea of a better one mm-hmm. and people are rightfully cynical that like anything good could ever happen um, because nothing good ever does happen. Um, And that's why it's so vital to have political campaigns and political organizers that actually try to say, no, you do deserve better and we can actually win these things. And uh, we, there is a path to getting there. Um, Mm -hmm. And that when you see a win, for instance, when like a union goes out and strikes and succeeds in getting their demands, that builds up momentum for other workers elsewhere to say, oh, wow, actually, maybe winning is possible. Um, it's, it's extremely difficult, but it's at least like it's it's something that could happen. Um, and so I do think with all of this, like the, the survey, you know, is it doesn't really change any of where we are in any right. real sense like yeah. that. We still have the same issues and people will still respond to left politics if it's like primarily about, you know, dealing with their everyday issues and Mm -hmm. like amassing greater worker power or amassing greater democratic power in their lives. Um, Like, I still think there's probably hope for that, but... Yeah. I don't know. I I work at a socialist magazine, so (laughs) whatever. Yeah. Yeah. What do you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I don't know. So, you know, yeah. thanks. thanks uh, it's, you. it's an interesting report as always. Like I yeah. said, you know, even if you sort of take it with a grain of salt, um, it's, it's sort of fun to look at the different breakdowns and everything. So that's out from Pew Research. Um, go check that out. Uh, and yeah, on that Peter. note, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we love you. Um, right. yeah, should we, so let's dive into the rest of the show. Yes, let's do it. All right, so I am now joined by who else? Paul Prescott, Labor Paul, to talk about the ongoing uh, rail negotiations. Paul has a new article in Jacobin titled Rail Unions and Employers Have a Tentative Agreement, But a Strike Isn't Off the Table. Paul, great to see you as always. Great to be back and talking about labor again. Of course. Uh, so we, so of course there have been some interesting developments, uh, with the rail negotiations and the prospect of a rail strike, uh, just to kind of catch people up. Uh, I want to mention that you were on the show previously a few weeks ago, kind of giving some of the background on the conditions that led up to this point. Um, so maybe just do, uh, to start off a very quick summary of kind of what, what has happened so far, uh, up to the point of last week's tentative agreement. Uh, what, what, what was it that the rail Workers were asking for. Yeah. So uh, first, you know, these negotiations were started back in 2020. That's when the contract originally expired. Um, so they've been, you know, at it since then trying to get a deal now. And I, I know I'll cover this on the, the last segment, but rail negotiations are covered by the Railway Labor Act, um, which also covers a lot of air airline workers. And it's basically a different um, kind of collective bargaining arrangement that was arranged by the government I mean, primarily to prevent a strike um, at all costs, um, realizing how strategic and how vital this sector was to the economy. So under the Railway Labor Act, after a certain amount of time, if an agreement isn't reached, the president can appoint the Presidential Emergency Board or the PEB. Um, so Biden did that um, in the summer. And, you know, after the, the Presidential Emergency Board is supposed to uh, present recommendations um, to the rail unions uh, to, vo- to uh, vote on, 
Um, and then the railways can vote on that. And then after that, there's another cooling off period before when they could uh, uh, strike. So to go to where, you know, what are the issues animating workers? You know, the, the biggest thing that seems to really be firing workers up is not necessarily pay. It's actually the um, attendance and scheduling issues. And this actually almost turned into a strike at one of the railways, BNSF, back in the winter, um, where they introduced a new scheduling policies. But Basically, rail workers really do not have um, any sick days. Um, they have very little paid time off. They spend a lot of time away from their families on their um, on their routes. You know, it's very normal for them to be weeks, months on end away from their families, maybe come back for two days and, and they're always on call. So this um, issue of scheduling has really been the animating factor. And the Presidential Emergency Board, when they put out their recommendations, it included recommendations mostly on wages, a little bit on benefits, but did not even touch the um, scheduling issue. Um, so I think that's a big reason why negotiations had to keep going until last week, where they um, got reaching a tentative agreement that does um, touch on that issue a little bit. But um, really, it's, it's coming down to how unsustainable this job has gotten for rail workers. You know, this right. is a job where... I mean, it's a very good union job in some sense. I mean, you can make up to over 100000 a year, very good benefits. For so long, this is the kind of career, you know, once you get it, you'd be crazy to leave early. This is something you're, you're going to do until you retire. But increasingly, that has not been the case. I mean, as they've been cutting down staff to the bone, forcing more work out of each individual worker, more and more workers are retiring early um, and just not wanting to stay in this industry. So I think for a lot of workers... This is not just one more contract. I mean, this could be the contract to decide whether they stay in this industry or not. Right. Uh, so so let's jump now to the tentative agreement that was reached, uh, because I think if anyone was following the rail negotiations last week, they probably saw a lot of headlines that said things like, you know, a, a rail strike has been averted at the 11th hour, uh, like Joe Biden, you know, intercedes to uh, prevent a rail strike. Uh, now, as you point out in your piece, and as you alluded to here, uh, the rail carriers and the unions really have only reached a tentative agreement. Um, now, this still that means that this still needs to be ratified by the union membership. Uh, what's in the agreement so far? And is a strike still likely? Yeah, and I'll start with the point that you, you just said that I think it's kind of irresponsible the way some of the media is reporting this. And it might just be because they don't understand how most unions work. But, you know, to be clear, this is a tentative agreement. The workers still have to vote on it. Um, so it's very possible that they will vote no um, and it will go back to negotiations. We could possibly be at a strike threat again. And in this process of voting, it looks like it's going to take at least two to three weeks before um Members can read the agreement, you know, debate it, discuss it and cast their vote. Um, so the agreement, you know, uh, um, it, it's it's made some clear gains in some ways and it's more ambiguous in others. Um, so to start with the gains, you know, on wages, this would represent the best wage increase for rail workers in over 40 years. So um, basically, this would be a 24 percent wage increase by 2024, including an immediate 14 percent raise. And remember, I mean, this contract was supposed to be ratified in 2020. So it only goes until 2024 and they'll have to negotiate again, which I'm sure will be uh, very fun when that happens. Um, also, something that was went underreported was um, the health care cost. So a big demand was no increase in co-pays and deductibles. It seems like this agreement um, caps the deductibles so they will not have any increase in their health care um, costs. Another big important one was protection of two-person crews. Um, so 
you know, it used to be that you would have about four or five rail workers manning these um, train cars. Um, that's been cut down to two. And, you know, to think about how this is a safety issue, it's increasingly common now you have trains that have 200, up to 200 cars attached that are about two or three miles long. So imagine one worker having to man that whole entire train car, often containing, you know, dangerous materials and chemicals and things like that. So the carriers are trying to put it down to one worker. I mean, two people is not even enough, but right now it's two. So this agreement for now protects two-person crews on these trains. Um, But I think on the most important point, which again was the um, scheduling and attendance policies, it seems to be a little bit more ambiguous. Um, So there is vague language and there's still a lot not known about this agreement, which is also um, an issue. Um, There's still some details that are not released that hopefully will be in the next few days. Um, So there's a vague commitment to some more unpaid sick days without losing attendance points. And there's a commitment to one single paid sick day. Um, so the original demand from workers was um, 15 paid sick days. So this mm-hmm. is a far cry from that. Yeah. And so, and this is where I want to talk, you know, be very cautious in how I speak. You know, I'm, I'm not a real worker. I'm not in close touch with these workers. So I don't want to say for sure or not, they're going to vote it down or not. Um, right. we, we are seeing rumblings, you know, some groups like Railroad Workers United um, are kind of reporting out workers being very upset about this. And just thinking, you know, if I was a railroad worker and the the, um, uh, paid sick days was my number one issue, um, getting one would not necessarily be, I don't know, for me, the the biggest deal in the world. And especially regard because aside from that, this contract is very similar to the Presidential Emergency Board recommendations that Mm -hmm. a lot of the workers rejected. So, Um, it kind of remains to be seen. Um, you know, it seems like workers are still very upset. I don't have the biggest, broadest view of how that goes, but I, I would just say that we should definitely not assume as a given that these workers are going to vote for this contract. Um, and, and Biden's been kind of doing this victory lap and they're talking about it like it's a done deal. Maybe this is like psychological warfare. Um, it's kind of like when Pete Buttigieg declared victory in Iowa. Uh, <laughs> right. Before it was well, George Bush um, declaring victory in Iraq. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so and maybe this is part of just trying to pressure the workers into accepting this. But, you know, it's still very open what could happen. Um, you know, a lot of the key issues, it's not like it's very clear that there's been a big win. So it's a little bit ambiguous at this point. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that brings up a kind of broader question, uh, and, and obviously this will vary from shop to shop, but how exactly do workers decide what a good contract is? It's a good question. Um, now, part of this is the process that plays out in different unions. So some unions allow for more time for discussion and, and a, more avenues for discussion than others. Um, you know, it looks like they have a pretty robust process in, in, in these rail unions that are still going to vote on this, where members will get to see the agreement, um, be able to submit feedback and, and discussion and things like that. You're also probably going to see a lot of self-organization of workers, you know, where mm-hmm. there might be gaps in the process. Again, I think groups like Railroad Workers United are facilitating a lot of discussions of this agreement across um, unions. But there is going to be time built in to discuss this and vote on it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into this. You know, if yeah. if a local union leadership is recommending voters, uh, workers vote for it and they have credibility and and things like that, you know, that could sway some workers, um, mm-hmm. you know, or, or vice versa. But 
there has seemed to be throughout this process a little bit of a gap between what the rail union leaders have seen as a good deal and what the workers have. Because, you know, back at, earlier in the summer, the, the leaders accepted an agreement that they put to membership for voting. And some of the unions, again, there are 12 different rail unions, which is mm-hmm. why this is, can be a little bit confusing. So there were many rail unions that have already accepted agreements, but there are currently two holdouts which happen to be the unions with the most members um, right. in, in, the, in the rail workforce. Um, so, you know, but I think that they're going to get a chance to discuss this and, um, you know, and, and, and cast their vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that all of this also brings up another kind of like big picture question, uh, which is, uh, so obviously, you know, at this point, we kind of understand that if if the rail, if, if the rail workers, even just a small segment of them went on strike, this would be like disastrous for the U.S. economy, right? And that brings up this question of... Um, I think the left often talks about so-called strategic industries or strategic sectors, uh, usually when we're talking about areas where we might want to organize or salt, right? And uh, I, I, you know, one question I have is I think that people often talk about so-called strategic industries as though it's really obvious what that means, um, but I, I think it's actually not that obvious. So I want to ask you, Labor Paul, um, when people talk about strategic industries, uh, aside from you know obviously this consideration of it would be incredibly disruptive to the economy if these workers went on strike. Like what else makes a sector strategic uh, or, or what should people mean when they talk about strategic industries? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I kind of look at three categories in talking about a sector being strategic. So one of them being, you know, the more obvious one, the ability to shut down the economy and hurt profits. And I think logistics is kind of the most clear example of that. You know, even though we've had people covering this story for months, it was like mm-hmm. last week, all of a sudden people were freaking out, just realizing the magnitude of, oh, my God, if there's a rail strike, like we won't be able to get agricultural products where they need to be. Like it's going to affect everything. So right. logistics, you know, rail workers, UPS workers, Amazon workers, things like that is pretty obvious. Um, I think another category we should think about is the the inability to offshore or automate these jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously this has been a huge problem for the labor movement, you know, that a key reason why union density has gotten lower is when companies are just shipping these jobs overseas or to a different area in the United States and also automation, which is just continuing to accelerate. So if you can find a sector where um, capital can't do that as easily, that's going to give workers more leverage. It's going to give us the ability to organize in a more long-term way. Um, and I think a third ca- category to think about is um, a sector where workers have a deep connection to a broader social base, even if it is not necessarily a sector where, um, you know, they're going to hurt profits in an in intense way. And, you know, bringing these categories together, people like Jane McAlevey um, and, and others, a lot of people in DSA have kind of come to agree with this idea. She has deemed, you know, three sectors to be particularly strategic, um, logistics, education, and healthcare. And I think for when we talk about inability to offshore and automate, you know, they haven't figured out yet how to have like robotic nurses, you know, that are in hospitals. And obviously there are certain functions within a hospital that can be automated to a degree, but you just can't have yet this large scale automation. You also can't just ship a hospital overseas. I would, of course, defeat the whole point. Um, there's also with, with healthcare, this connection to their patients. So many of the, you know, we've covered this before in this show, many nurses strikes, um, in recent years, I mean, really the last 10, 20 years 
the defining issue has been safe staffing. And mm-hmm. part of that is improving the nurse's job, but it's also a way of saying we want to protect our patients because when there's when nurses are overwhelmed, that's unsafe for the patients. So they have this connection to their the people that they are serving. And education fits that as well. I mean, we're seeing a rise in cyber charters and things like that. I think that stuff is going to accelerate, but mm-hmm. you still won't see in the near future this ability to just automate teaching. And as we're seeing, we talked about on the last show, you know, they're scrambling to get um, real life human teachers right now. And, and again, also, you can't offshore, you know, moving a public school to China is just not a thing. And and then as we've seen in so many educator strikes, you know, they've been able to link their demands and get the support of the broader community. And so even though, you know, a teacher strike, it's not like you're hurting a company's profits per se, but you can cause a political crisis. You know, if it's in a large public school district like Chicago, Los Angeles, if you're on strike for a week, that has disrupted everything um, and, and it's kind of caused a political crisis. Um, so I think in, the, in that sense, these these industries have this broader impact and are strategic for those reasons. And yeah. and now having said that, you know, I don't think we should get too carried away and, and be like, OK, only those three sectors <laughs> right. matter. You know, right. that's the only thing we focus on. Obviously, things like, I mean, construction, strategic. Um, I mean, everything matters, of course, but right. I think it's helpful to think about these key things. And I think this latest, you know, crisis of the rail industry is just another wake up call. You know, however much we want to talk about we're a service economy, we're post-industrial. I mean, this is just a slap of reality in all of our faces. Like, oh yeah, shit. I mean, everything depends on this industrial labor still. No matter, yes, a lot has changed, but everything depends on it. And just, you know, there's 115,000 rail workers, roughly a relatively small amount of workers thinking about the whole economy. And even if just a fraction of those go on strike, you're talking about this massive um, crisis. So it's just another thing to remind us that we are not past industrial labor. It still matters. If anything, it might matter more than ever when we're talking about logistics and the way our supply chains um, have been organized. Right, right. So I guess maybe like, let's wrap up on this. Uh, You know, when we're talking about strategy, I kind of feel like anyone can come up with a theory of what the labor movement should do, right? Um, But it it seems to me that these strategy discussions really only become important or like at least become less abstract when organizing activity and union activity is ramping up, right? Uh, I guess the last question for you then is like, have we reached that point? Uh, Obviously, there's been a lot of excitement around, you know, new organizing activity. And uh, as you have pointed out, there are uh, several big contracts, including the UPS contract that maybe that are expiring next year and could, you know, maybe lead to a a kind of burst of labor militancy. But have we reached the point where these strategy discussions are becoming important? I I think we're getting there where it's becoming more real. I mean, one example that sticks out is, you know, um, various unions have talked about organizing Amazon forever. Um, Amazon labor union, the small independent union, for whatever reason, they're the ones that do it first, despite not having the same resources that other unions do. But now I think it kind of served as like a, a, you know, a shot in the arm to other unions. So like the Teamsters have established an Amazon organizing department and are looking at it more seriously um, you know, I think it's this moment where things are just happening already and unions are, are looking at how to adapt to it. Um, I also think there's a key window of opportunity here that I don't know how long will last, you know, with this very friendly National Labor Relations Board that really has made a difference, you know, in 
getting Starbucks workers who are fired, reinstated. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing for Amazon workers. They're actually like holding these large companies accountable. Now, I hope this we this window survives, you know, past yeah. 2024, but we, we shouldn't assume that it will. And I think while there is that window of opportunity, we got to try to go as far as we can. Um, but and, and I think we're seeing this ferment happen both within unionized workers. So, you know, remembering last year, John Deere workers, um, Kellogg's workers voting down contracts and holding out for a better contract. Um, IATSE workers almost going on strike. UPS may be happening in a year. So both among unionized workers, which we need to happen, we need kind of this renewal and energy in the existing unions. And of course, these these new areas. So Amazon, Chipotle, Starbucks. So we're seeing both things happen at the same time. And and it's raising interesting questions. I don't know how far this will go. And I think we should have a balanced view. On the one hand, it's very exciting and we should be excited about it. But I think sometimes I think people are getting carried away about declaring like this is the new upsurge in labor. You know, I think one thing to keep in mind, I saw someone put this on Twitter, you know, when you think about it, you take all the Starbucks workers who have organized so far together and add them up. That's not as many workers that exist in just one Amazon plant. Right. So, you know, thinking about Starbucks, we're talking still about a relatively small number of workers. Um, But I think what it does serve, it has this symbolic power of this it's spreading like wildfire. None of us predicted it. You know, it keeps spreading. It's something people can kind of engage with. You know, there's been DSA chapters doing this thing where, you know, you go in, there's Starbucks that's organizing, you you order a coffee under the name Union Yes and stuff right. and show support. So I feel like it's its power is more in almost it, the symbol of like going up against this big company and something spreading. But we shouldn't get so carried away when we think about, you know, the context of how many workers we're talking about, right. you know, what what aspect of the economy. So th- I think there's a long way to go, but we're definitely seeing that this has staying power, which is also encouraging. You know, we, we're seeing big strikes in healthcare. I mean, there was recently a very big strike in Minnesota with nurses, unions, and teachers. Now we see it spread to rail. So we're basically seeing every single sector is affected by this ferment and labor. Um, and again, it's just reminding us that I think labor is going to remain a very big political question. Well, I think for, for socialists, it always was and always will be, but I think it's it's going to be on the agenda in these next few years. Um, again, where all this stuff goes, I don't know, but I think mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing some things starting to shift. And I think some of these strategic debates are becoming more real because of activity that's happening on the ground. Strike wild, the NLRB iron is hot. Pun yeah, obviously intended. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will link Paul's article on the uh, rail strike below. Paul, great to see you as always. Uh, till next time. Yeah, thank you. All right. So I will be back in a minute with our friend Matt Brunig, who is going to be talking a little bit about a new study that seems to show a dramatic drop in child poverty in the U.S. over the last several decades. Uh, Matt Matt has some criticisms. Uh, so we'll be back with Matt in a second. But first, a quick note from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in September and get your first month free. This month's selections are 
Cannibal Capitalism, How Our System is Devouring Democracy, Care, and the Planet, and What We Can Do About It by Nancy Frazier, an analysis of contemporary capitalism's insatiable appetite and a rallying cry for everyone who wants to stop it from devouring our world. Self-Defense, A Philosophy of Violence by Elsa Dorland, a look across the global history of the left tracing the politics, philosophy, and ethics of self-defense. The 2023 Versal Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a week-to-view planner for keeping track of the year ahead. And Microverses, Observations from a Shattered Present by Dylan Riley, over a hundred short essays inviting us to think about society and social theory in new ways. Become a member today at versobooks.com. All right, so I am now joined by Matt Brunig. He, of course, is the founder and president of the People's Policy Project, but we just know him here as the Welfare King. Matt, good to see you as always. Oh, thanks for having me back. So uh, last week, the New York Times ran a piece that seems to contain on, on its face some good news, right? So the title of the piece is Expanded Safety Net Drives Sharp Drop in Child Poverty. Uh, in the piece, the author sort of covers this study that seems to show that child poverty in the U.S. since 1993 has fallen by almost 60%. Uh, so thanks to, you know, various uh, improvements in the social safety net. This is what the study and the New York Times article claim. So uh, that all sounds well and good. Uh, I want to throw a graph from the study up here. Uh, It clearly shows the decline since 1993. Uh, There are some noticeable, you know, steep drops and plateaus in places. Now, Matt, you've since published a few different criticisms of this study and of the New York Times article. Uh, But I want to start with the graph. What first stood out to you when you saw this? Yeah. So, I mean, you look at the graph and you you basically have three things, like three chunks, right? You got the 90s in which poverty is falling. That much is clear enough um, because employment was growing a lot. And that that matters, you know, as you bring more and more people into the workforce, you're going to get some drops in poverty. That makes sense. Then from 2000 to the mid 2010s, we don't get anything. It's a total flat line. That also makes sense. Two recessions, employment was down. We never even got back to our high 90s level. Okay, everything's pretty much square. Um, And then at the end, you get this sharp drop in 2018, 2019. This is during the Trump years. Um, And it's sort of mysterious, like what's going on there? We were that's not too long ago. We were all alive. That's Mm -hmm. that's a weird uh, change that occurred. Um, And so that that's what I really honed in on, especially in my second piece was what what happened in 2018 and 2019 that could possibly explain this drop, which is like a 25 percent drop in child poverty relative to 2017. Right. Yeah. So so what what did you find? What happened in 2018? Did child poverty really experience a sharp decline uh, that year? Yeah. So I, um, you know, I looked at what the authors were trying to hinge it on, you know, and they needed an explanation, too. And they tried to say, well, there was an increase in the child tax credit. And there was an increase in the child tax credit. But the child tax credit, um, at least in this, not not including last year, but the child tax credit is phased in, meaning poor people, the poorest people are not eligible for it at all. Basically, you get 15 cents of benefits for every dollar you earn over twenty five hundred dollars up to fourteen hundred dollars of total benefits. 
the long story short was if you made less than $2,500, you didn't get any money from the increased CTC. And if you made less than like $9,200, the most you got from the increased CTC was $75 per kid. And that's for the whole year. And that $75 would have been swallowed up by inflation adjustments anyway. So like if you're making less than, you know, nine, 10 grand, the CTC wasn't coming to you. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do was say, okay, so is to say, let's look at the incomes of kids up and down the ladder. And let's especially compare the incomes of kids at the bottom who we know didn't get the CTC to kids who are around the band where you would expect them to get the increased CTC. And what I found was the poorest kids had the same exact income spike as the kids at the 10th percentile, the 20th percentile, the 30th percentile. Every percentile of kid, you just get in this little blip in 2018. And it's not little, actually. It's like 500 to to $1,000 per person in the in the kids home so like the second percentile kid which is like poor the 98 percent of kids their income almost increased by a thousand dollars per person Mm -hmm. so if you got a mom and one kid that's two thousand dollars and that's the poor like poorest poorest they would not have gotten the ctc the ctc was only 75 dollars anyway it -hmm. doesn't make any sense right so i'm looking at these blips and i'm thinking okay so something has to explain these blips doesn't really make sense these people on the bottom they're not employed that's why they're on the bottom or you know like at that level so what's going on and eventually I, I, I search around and I figure out, oh, in, in 2018, the census for the first time implemented changes to the way um, it asks certain income questions and uh, the way that it does certain family relations, especially around same-sex couples. So mm-hmm. my claim <laughs> was that that seems like a much more plausible explanation yeah. for why the poorest kids who aren't even eligible for the CTC had this big spike. Yeah. Um, well, you know, on the subject of uh, these various uh, measures and ways of like looking at poverty and looking at income, um, aside from the weirdness of 2018, uh, I, I feel like you also had or, you know, a, a, you kind of sensed a red flag that this study and this New York Times article claimed that child poverty had fallen like 60 percent since the 90s, which basically, according to them, would, you know, make the U.S. no longer a statistical outlier uh, among, you know, uh, first world or like OECD countries in terms of child poverty. Uh, and, and and something that you mention in your pieces is, you know, there's there's uh there's there's something interesting going on with the way that these researchers happen to be measuring poverty and you know as you alluded to how they're also measuring the effects of the social safety net specifically uh the earned income tax credit and the CTC as you mentioned. Um now you also say in your piece that you don't really like debating poverty measures and I do want to get to that in a second uh but but just in terms of you know this long-term decline in child poverty why why didn't that seem right to you and what what like what measures were the researchers using that kind of produced this effect, I guess? Yeah, you know, I know the data set that they've used. That data set has been out for seven years. Of course, the last couple of years gets kind of added as things go along. So I'm full, you know, like that's one of the things that irritated me about the New York Times piece, frankly, is it's like brand new data set. This is right. like, literally seven years old. I've been playing with this for seven years. Um and so immediately, you know, I know what they're doing, right? They they take the poverty line in 2012 
and it's called an anchored poverty line. And then they just adjust that for inflation up and down the years. And this is an old trick. I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say trick. That maybe has put too much malice. But if you've seen some of the conservative poverty papers, they like to do the same thing, but they like to anchor it to like 1960, you know, and say, well, if you look at the 1960 poverty line, man, we're really, we're killing it. Um <laughs> And, you know, this is not as pronounced as that, but it has a similar effect, especially as you go further back in time, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're looking at poverty in 1960 using the 2012 poverty measure, I think the series goes back to 1967. Mm -hmm. What's well, going to be, you know, high, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, because it's a different era, you know? Um, and so that's the approach they use is they use this anchored measure. And the more typical approach you see in international comparisons is what's called a relative poverty measure. And the way that works is you just take the median income, you cut it in half, and you mm -hmm. say anyone who has less than half the median, we're going to call that poor. Um, and that makes it for nice, clean comparisons across countries. You don't have to have all these dis debates about purchase purchasing power parity and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that that and you point this out the the very first paragraph of the New York Times pieces they they frame the whole thing as like, oh, at least you know. <laughs> Where Europe used to be so much more better than us, and, and now actually we're down to, you know, we're, we're kind of where they are. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, the measures on which Europe beats us, which are these relative poverty measures, they still are beating us by the same exact amounts mm -hmm. as they were before. So you use this measure that they don't even use. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows? I mean, if we were to anchor, uh, you know, Swedish poverty to the 19, you know, 85 or pick some number like that, who knows mm -hmm. where that would be, you know? So there's a kind of abuse of statistics here and also just a lack of recognition that there are a lot of poverty measures. This is kind of the only unique one that's really looks like this yeah. and maybe incorporate other measures, you know, <laughs> instead mm -hmm. of just hinging it on this outlier, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess I want to wrap up uh, by by just staying on this question of poverty measures, uh, because, you know, I think for people who aren't social scientists, uh, you, you've already sort of um, outlined some of the ways that researchers look at poverty. I think the one that people might be familiar with is the supplemental poverty measure, which is interesting because that's the one that sort of takes into account social safety net programs. Right. And um, I think on a kind of political level, uh, this poverty measure is sort of supposed to show that social safety net programs and welfare programs do help people and, and sort of help bounce people out of poverty. Um, I don't think you would disagree with that. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, I guess I want to ask you as somebody who, you know, has a political and kind of personal interest in welfare state programs and specifically programs that are meant to kind of boost families and kids out of poverty. Um, someone who's also a quantitative researcher, like what's a better way of looking at the problem of child poverty? Uh, because, you know, my sense is that the the New York Times author and, you know, the authors of the original study, uh, what, what they're trying to show is that welfare state programs help, right? But, uh, you know, I... They, yeah, I mean, they do help, and, and no doubt, but the, I guess the main thing that initially had irritated me about it, when you're talking about child poverty in particular, right, what happened 
in the 90s is we got rid of the means-tested benefit for the poorest kids. That was not a great benefit. I'm not here to defend that benefit. You know, that's not how I would design anything. We got rid of that and we used these tax credits, Mm -hmm. which basically targeted the upper half of poor kids. Right away, you're already playing games when you start targeting the upper half of poor kids because we count poverty as being reduced if you bring someone over the line. So you target right below the line, you can get people over the line, right? You target the very poor, you don't get them all the way over the line, and it doesn't count. And that's a ridiculous way of measuring anything. Um, But the other thing is the tax credits that we switch to, they don't measure them, really. What they do is they call up, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, and they take this income survey, and they say, how much money did you earn last year? They call them in March, and they ask them, how much did you earn last year? Already, that's a, a questionable approach. Right. <laughs> uh, if you, I don't know that I could tell you how much I earned last year, you know, the three right. months later. Um, then they take that amount that they say and they run it through a tax simulator, right? Um, you know, and, and then that'll tell you how much tax credit you're owed. And that's mm-hmm. what they give you. That's what yeah. they say you got. But we know through other research that just says, instead of doing that, why don't we look at what the IRS actually has on record as Mm -hmm. sending out to these people? And let's put that value in there. When you put that value in there, the... What you find is that the tax simulators are overstating the poverty reduction by like 67%. And then I've gone further than that and said, you need to do more than that. It's not just we need to look at the IRS paid. We also need to realize that people are not getting this money in the year that they need it. They Mm -hmm. get it the year later. And Mm -hmm. we're we're counting it as if they're getting it in the prior year. And we're also not counting tax prep fees, which take like 13 to 22% of of these benefits. So Mm -hmm. when you do all that, I've... I've found that it's overstated by 100%. So that's what really irritated me more than anything is it's like this child, the, th- the approach we've taken to child poverty with these tax credits is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bad. And yet here we are just like, you know, mission accomplished kind of stuff. You <laughs> right. know? Yeah. Um, well, I guess then to wrap up, uh, obviously, people can go to the People's Policy Project website and find very detailed sort of outlines and policy recommendations. Uh, but since you have been kind of on the child tax credit and just child poverty beat, uh, you know, for a while, but specifically in this last, you know, last year, last two years, what are sort of the top three uh, child poverty reduction programs that People's Policy Project would recommend right now? Yeah, I mean, number one is a universal child benefit paid every yeah. month. We sort of had something like that last year, um, but you know, you could make it a lot better than that. Number two, free child care. Of course, it's uh, we give free education from age five to eighteen, and then we don't give it for kids, even though they're more expensive. A one-year-old, right. a two-year-old, way more expensive than an eight-year-old. Um, that, I would say that's one and two. After that. I mean, that's really the big two. You can throw in paid leave and stuff yeah. like that. That matters a little bit. But you're talking about six months of you know, a kid's <laughs> life. Uh, but like, those are the big ones. So Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we will go ahead and link Matt's articles on the New York Times article and the, uh, the study it covered below. Matt, great to see you as always. And thanks for your time. Thank you. All right. I'm now joined by Samir Santi. He is an assistant professor over at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies, and he has just published a new piece in the print issue of Jacobin called Red the Fed. We'll be talking to him today about all things inflation and the Federal Reserve, of course. Samir, good to see you. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. 
So uh, obviously, as we are recording this, the Federal Reserve is actually holding its September meeting as we speak. Uh, you know, they have basically already announced another red, uh, another rate hike, interest rate hike. And, you know, the, the Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, has been, I think, pretty open that he would really like to just keep raising rates as high as he can until like inflation is over, right? So uh, the last time you were on the show to talk about inflation, we kind of covered this, uh, but I, I think it's good to just sort of summarize or, or start on this point. Uh, what does the Fed want to happen when they raise interest rates? And what's wrong with this approach? Sure. Um, so the Fed operates with a very particular interpretation of why inflation is occurring right now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if we if follow the debates around this, there's a few different interpretations. One that we heard a lot in over the past year is about supply chains, right? That the price increases that we've seen are the result of a bunch of pandemic related and then subsequently, um, you know, Russian and Ukraine related supply shocks. Mm -hmm. So that's one interpretation, but the Fed operates uh, according to a different one, which is that inflation is the result of too much demand in the economy right now, too much spending power. That's visible through things like the unemployment rate being quite low and workers having bargaining power to raise wages based on their position mm -hmm. of security. And so the logic, if the inflation results from too much demand, the solution is then to reduce the amount of demand. And so the Fed does this by raising interest rates. And, and the way it's sort of a just sort of a obscure mechanism. But if you think about it, it makes sense, right? That when when interest rates go up, it's harder to borrow. It's harder to get a mortgage and buy a home, which means the housing industry slows down. It's harder for businesses to borrow and invest, which means business activity slows down. All of this together means the economy begins to slow. And when the economy slows, unemployment rises. Mm -hmm. And when unemployment rises, workers have less bargaining power and less ability to raise wages mm -hmm. collectively. So, mm -hmm. so really what the Fed's trying to do is weaken workers' ability to raise their wages and in so doing limit the pressure that they perceive as resulting from this excess demand, excess mm -hmm. demand in relation to the amount of supply. So it really is quite striking that it's a class interpretation that the Fed is operating up, um, on. You know, we got too much demand. And the way that we deal with this is through undermining workers' bargaining power, limiting demand, possibly through a recession. Now, mm -hmm. Powell says he doesn't want to create a recession. He hopes that he can kind of slow things down without creating too much collateral damage. And it's possible that he's sincere about that. But the bottom line is that's that's the rationale. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely want to talk more about the kind of class aspect that you mentioned. Uh, but I also want to ask you, like, how and why did raising interest rates become this de facto method of fighting inflation? Uh, because something that you hinted at is, you know, that's not necessarily a good solution, uh, but that's what the U.S. has been doing for decades. Uh, how did this come about? Yeah, I mean, I guess I should say just kind of on building on the previous comment, if in fact you believe that inflation is to at least some significant degree the result of these supply issues, 
reducing demand is not going to do much about that, right? right? Reducing demand doesn't change the fact that oil prices have been rising. Now they're coming down a little bit, but doesn't do anything about the fact that, you know, supply chains from China and elsewhere have been disrupted as a result of the pandemic um, and, you know, the ongoing policy in China. Doesn't do anything about that. What it does is reduce, just again, reduce demand and take a toll on workers' ability to spend. So where that comes from is... I mean, it's it's a it's become over the last generation the response to inflation, and the origin of this is really in the 1970s. Now, even before the 1970s, the Fed responded to inflationary pressure through interest rate increases. This, you know, in the 50s and 60s, they were doing similar versions of this. But the real model that the Fed's operating on right now started in the 1970s and was sort of epitomized by Paul Volcker, who was the chair of the Fed in the late 1970s and then, you know, through the through most of the 80s. He was appointed by Jimmy Carter, notably, and. He, in response to ongoing inflation through that decade, which is of a different variety than what we're experiencing now, inflation can result from a variety of different causes. But in response to that inflation, which proved intractable, right, and had a number of causes that we could potentially talk about, he felt the only way to really get it under control was to weaken the organized working class's ability to raise wages. And the logic there was that wherever inflation is coming from, you know, it could be coming from an oil shock. It could be coming from broader kind of secular long-term trends in the economy. Wherever it's coming from, it becomes a problem when it gets baked into the expectations of workers, businesses, and so on. When people expect more inflation, then they act in such a way that creates it. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the diagnosis of the 70s from Volcker was that whatever the cause of inflation is, the problem was that workers had come to anticipate it. And at the time, the labor movement was much stronger and unions had cost of living agreement, uh, you know, agreements and other, other protections. And we're bidding up wages in anticipation of further price increases. And so in order to get anything under control in Volcker's view, they had to eliminate the expectation of further price increases. And the way that you eliminate that expectation is weakening the power of workers to act on that expectation, which is through, again, weakening the power of organized labor specifically. And Volcker was very clear about this. And so his action was to raise rates considerably to almost 20 percent and provoke an extremely severe recession in 1980, 1981 that the U.S. labor movement has really never recovered from. And it worked, you could say. Right. I mean, inflation did come down and inflation remained relatively stable over the next few decades. And in a sense, Volcker's action ratified this interpretation. Right. It it proved the um, effectiveness of using interest rates as the mechanism to combat inflation. Now, if, if you know, had he not done that, it might have taken a whole set of other tools yeah. that addressed the actual causes in that particular historical moment. Interest rates, if you take them high enough, they will work because at a certain point when interest rates rise to a certain level, the economy is going to slow and a slowing economy will eliminate some of the pressure on Mm -hmm. prices. 
So what exactly does this particular approach to fighting inflation sort of tell us about the role of the central bank today? Uh, Because, you know, your piece looks at a few historical examples of when the Federal Reserve operated kind of differently. And I want to get to that next. Uh, But but yeah, again, just what does this like interest rate hike uh, centric model of fighting inflation tell us about the role of the Fed right now? Yeah, I mean, it's central banks and the Federal Reserve, you know, they're, they're, you know, you maybe hear about these things, right? The, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, right? They're, they're in the air. But like, what exactly they do is, I think, often very unclear. And I think a, an important point to emphasize is that over the last generation or more, right, what we might call for sake of simplicity, the neoliberal era, central banks have been the principal architects of economic policy. We could call this, you know, the neoliberal era, we could just as well call it the age of the central bank. Mm -hmm. And what the central bank and what the Federal Reserve sees as its responsibility is two things. One, maintaining stable prices, avoiding inflation at all costs. And two, ensuring that conditions for the financial sector's operation are stable and and well-managed. And that could involve, at times of crisis, diving in and, and you know, undertaking enormous rescue operations like we saw in 2008, like we saw again in 2020. But the two are related in that, you know, financial market prosperity is conditional upon stable prices, the elimination of inflation. At least that's how they see it. And so in the first place, always maintaining price stability is the sort of reason of the Fed's existence in the modern era. So that that's that's where it comes from. I'm not sure if I've totally answered. I'm maybe spaced a little bit on what the entirety of the question is, but that's that's where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just interested in, um, yeah, like the role of the central banks right now, uh, because what I really wanted to dive into is, you know, your your piece lays out some really interesting examples of how the Federal Reserve operated differently in the past. And I think the most kind of striking era of comparison is, of course, the New Deal. Um, I, I, I believe you write in, in your piece that, you know, the role of the Fed has been contested pretty much throughout the course of the 20th century. Right. So uh, let's talk about the New Deal a little bit. Um, the obviously, you know, this was a period in which the Federal Reserve operated quite differently than it does now. Uh, how exactly did it function during that era? And, and how did this come to be? Yeah. So I guess the, the contrast is maybe helpful for kind of digging into that. Right. Right. Again, the Federal Reserve, to your question, their objective in the modern era is ensuring that the financial sector can operate and 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 accumulate profits and 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 continue in a stable fashion. And in times when crisis occurs, the Fed's got to step in to rescue it. But it's about the financial sector. It's about financial sector accumulation, maintaining the conditions for profitable accumulation within the financial sector is the Fed's reason of existence right now. That's not always been the case, Mm -hmm. right? The Federal Reserve need not be preoccupied solely with financial market conditions. And in the past, it had other priorities. So to take the New Deal example, I mean, the Federal Reserve was established in 1914. There's a long kind of history behind its its genesis. But moving to the Great Depression, it was clear that significant public investment, right, government expenditure was going to be necessary to get the economy out of depression. And this is, you know, Keynesianism is a term that sort of some people may be familiar with that originates 
in this period, John Maynard Keynes is an economist in the 1930s. And the idea was that government's got to spend to resuscitate a stagnant economy. And government spending can happen through really two ways, right? One is through taxing and spending. But when the economy is in deep depression, a high level of taxation could only further exacerbate the problems. And so in times like that, the government's got to borrow in order to spend, right? Government deficits are necessary to kickstart a stagnant economy. And the government has to borrow from somewhere, right? And has to borrow at rates, at interest rates, right? It has to pay back that debt in time. Um, the Federal Reserve in the 1930s, as a result of reforms that were implemented in the early 1930s under the Roosevelt administration, committed itself to ensuring that the government could borrow at reasonable rates so that it could service those debts over time in a sustainable way. And so that ultimately it could implement the New Deal mm -hmm. and, and subsequently finance World War II. World mm -hmm. War II is a massive, massive program of public investment. And in order to achieve that, the government needed low cost loans, right? Effectively, right? Mm -hmm. Effectively, that's what it needed, right? And the Federal Reserve committed itself through from, you know, the mid 1930s through the, the late 1940s to ensuring that the federal government would be able to borrow at reasonable rates to finance all of the public investment that was needed, in, you know, first for the New Deal and second for World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of building off of that, um, you know, we we tend to think of the New Deal as a time of uh, increased banking regulations, right? How did the Fed uh, kind of factor into that? Yeah, so I mean, the the depression is in part so severe because of widespread banking failures that mm -hmm. occur, you know, from basically starting in 1929 through 19, the early 1930s, 1933, and. One of the first orders of business of the Roosevelt administration is reforming the banking system. Mm -hmm. And so there's a couple big, you know, pieces of legislation that are implemented in 1933 and 1935. And the, the legacies of those are in some ways still with us, right? Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, which insures all of our deposits, that originates in that period. There was also another measure called Glass-Steagall, which mm -hmm. separated investment banks from commercial banks, right, to ensure that consumer deposits wouldn't be used in speculative fashion and then blow up and leave people with nothing, right? So those are kind of the, the famous um, legacies of New Deal banking legislation. But those laws also um, bore on the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And it did so in a couple ways. One was it centralized authority within the Federal Reserve in Washington in what's called the Board of Governors. When the Fed was established in 1914, it was very decentralized. And that decentralization prevented it from acting in an efficient way in response to crisis. So one thing that you know the Banking Acts did was centralize authority so that Washington, the Washington-based board could you know, quickly, effectively respond. The other thing it did is grant the Federal Reserve Board authority to regulate banks, right? In addition to, if we're going to, you know, ad, you know, address credit conditions so that the government can borrow at reasonable rates, you also have to ensure that Wall Street isn't going to exploit that um, in speculative ways like mm -hmm. we've seen over the last decade. And so the Fed was granted the authority to impose and enforce regulations on banks to guarantee that that wouldn't happen. So those are the two things that come out of the banking legislation. And those two features of the Fed are still with us today. They still are 
largely runs centrally through Washington. There are, you know, reserve banks around the country, but the Washington-based Board of Governors, which is meeting right now, they're the ones who are the real in the driver's seat. And the Fed is still uh, has the authority to regulate the banking system. And they do, but one might say not adequately. So maybe let's now talk about uh, how the Fed kind of went from this New Deal model to what we have today. Uh, you had previously mentioned World War II. Uh, and, and maybe the question here is, how exactly did the Fed decide to deal with inflation during World War II? And, and I believe you say in your piece that, you know, this, this sort of marks a turning point for monetary policy in the U.S. So, so what happened during World War II? Yeah, yeah. No, this is great. This is a really crucial period, right? World War II to the early 1950s is one of the most consequential periods of modern U.S. history. Um, and, and it's often not appreciated for its significance. So during World War II, again, I mean, massive, massive federal expenditure on the defense mobilization. You know, there, there, there's a stat that's just kind of wild. Between, during the war, the federal government, the value of federal investment in you know, plant and equipment, factories and productive facilities all over the country was equivalent to 50% of the total private capital stock in 1941, right? I mean, it's like enormous, right, amount of federal investment to, to wage the war effort. All of this is enabled by a cooperative Federal Reserve. The Fed maintaining the credit conditions, right, the borrowing conditions, so that the Treasury Department could finance the war effort. So this persists right through the war. It's crucial to the success. Now, when you've got that kind of a demand, right, massive federal investment, huge amount of demand, favorable borrowing conditions, growing budget deficits, right? This these are the conditions that could create significant inflation, Mm -hmm. right? Those are potentially inflationary conditions. But during World War II, there's hardly any inflation. And the reason is, in addition to what the Federal Reserve and the Treasury were doing, the federal government created what was called the Office of Price Administration, which was a which was a really robust federal entity that was charged with maintaining price controls across the entire economy. Literally, the price of every single thing was was subject to regulation. And it was enforced, I mean, on the one hand, by, you know, a staff of like 100,000 federal employees. And on the other hand, by communities, mm-hmm. people women largely in different communities, policing the prices of things in stores, supermarkets, department stores, and and reporting violations and so on. And and all of this together allowed for enormous, enormous growth and stable prices, right? So, and, and, and all the while, full employment, right? Mm -hmm. There's basically zero, I mean, there is literally zero unemployment during World War II. So we get to the end of the war. And a big question is, what's going to happen to this entire machinery? right, this entire economic infrastructure. And the labor movement, one of their biggest demands coming out of the war and, you know, with the sort of haunted by the experience of the Depression is that the federal government commit itself to full employment, to maintaining full employment in peacetime. The, the years after World War I were a disaster. There was a steep recession in, in, or depression, really, in, you know, in 1920-21. And that legacy left a mark on working people. And so the labor movement's like, all right, we got to have a full employment policy. The government's got to commit itself to maximum employment. We also want other things. We want national health insurance. We want more public housing. We want a lot of things, right? We want a decent society. The government's proven the ability to implement incredible change 
very quickly, and we want that to continue into peacetime. But how do we do that while maintaining price stability, while avoiding runaway inflation the way that they did during the war? And so maintaining price controls is one option for doing that, right? And there's a big, I mean, huge political struggle in 1946 over this. Are, what is the Office of Price Administration and these price controls, are they going to be maintained? into peacetime. And business wages an incredible offensive against them, and ultimately they're dismantled. In 1946, the OPA uh, is ended, terminated, and prices soar. There's a steep inflation in late 19, through 1946. And actually that inflation is responsible largely for a Republican landslide in the 1946 midterms, which give us a, you know, a Congress that passes most infamously the Taft-Hartley Act, which mm-hmm. is still with us today and is one of the most anti-labor pieces of legislation you know, we've, we've seen. So going forward, though, in 1946, that Fed regime right, of guaranteeing low-cost debt to the federal government was still in place. Mm -hmm. The price controls are gone, inflation's skyrocketing, but the maintenance of some kind of arrangement between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury is by liberals understood to be crucial Mm -hmm. to the kinds of ambitions that they've got for the post-war period. But now we are in a climate of high inflation. In 1946, very high inflation, and then through the rest of the 40s, kind of threatening inflation. Inflation becomes a major political issue in the late 40s. And in this context, bankers, capitalists from a variety of industries, conservatives start waging a campaign to end this policy by the Federal Reserve, to say the Fed should no longer act with the sole priority of ensuring that the government can borrow at reasonable rates that the Federal Reserve should instead prioritize getting inflation under control, which means breaking with the previous commitment and raising interest rates as is needed. And this, this, you know, through, you know, 1948, 49, 50, this is being fought out. And then as the Korean War begins, there's a new burst of federal spending. And now it's sort of like center stage. Is the Fed going to continue this through the Korean War? Is this going to continue into perpetuity? Or is there going to be a shift? And in 1951, the capitalist class prevails Mm -hmm. and the Fed abandons its its commitment to maintaining low interest, you know, um, conditions for the federal government. And it's called the Fed Treasury Accord of 1951 is how it's remembered. And that's really the turning point. Now, they don't immediately like jack up interest rates through the roof. It's sort of a process after that. But that's the crucial um, inflection point in the Fed's history. I think what this is all kind of leading up to is um, you you have a great line in your piece that is a little bit provocative. You write, in many ways, the Federal Reserve is the most powerful central economic planning agency the world has ever seen. So maybe talk a little bit about what that means and, and how that kind of plays out today. Yeah, yeah. And I, to be fair, I can't take credit for that because other, others have made a similar <laughs> point um, because it's true, mm-hmm. right? It is the case that the Federal Reserve is just an extraordinary um, entity for managing not just U.S., but global capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this idea, I mean, it's kind of striking that in the, you know, in the neoliberal era, the age of the central bank has also been, you know, at least until recently, the age of market ideology, the idea mm-hmm. that the state ought not have any role in the economy. And while, in fact, these central banks, which are 
you know, quasi, if not entirely public entities, superintend the entire system. Mm -hmm. So the Fed is, I would say, you know, the most powerful economic central planning agency because it has the ability to determine what kinds of economic activity can occur. It has the ability to control who gets access to credit on what terms they get access to credit, which in turn conditions what kind of investment activity is going to take place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they are really at the apex of a financial system that conditions all other economic activity. And and they have, I mean, it's a set of people who make decisions, Mm -hmm. right? It's not, this isn't just like the market affecting these interest rates. They're going into a meeting. They're going to decide what they're going to do. And that, you know, then is transmitted through the entire economy. But I, I guess I should also say, you know, this point, I think, is important to emphasize because it also, I think, helps us push back against this idea that is, I think, a, a little bit too common in some circles, which is that the Fed is like a villain, right? The Fed is the biggest problem. Now, the Fed is actually a great thing. It's great that we have this thing, this public entity that can manage so much of our economic lives. Mm-hmm. It's not that the Fed's existence is not the problem. The problem is the interests that the Fed serves. Right. Uh, well, on the question of those interests, uh, you you had mentioned Volcker trying to undermine organized labor in the 70s. And I want to maybe connect that to today. Uh, you know, we have talked already about how Jerome Powell has been, you know, very open about wanting to keep wages down, basically, or, or to suppress wages. Uh, Does it seem like the Fed is sort of actively trying to suppress an incipient labor movement? I mean, because we've also been seeing, you know, obviously a tight labor market, but also a lot of union organizing is happening right now. And there's been a lot of attention to that. Uh, Not to get too conspiratorial, uh, but but do they see it as a threat, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, we're not going to know until we have access to, you know, the complete archives and we can really read what they've been talking about. Um, But it is the case, I think, and this this has been demonstrated by scholars over the years, that the Fed has historically, certainly since that Fed Treasury Accord in 1951, been very concerned about the labor movement's power. Mm -hmm. Um, Volcker, you know, infamously carried around in his pocket like a little note card with upcoming contract negotiations. You know, he was very he was very mindful of, you know, where labor was, what labor was capable of achieving. He also, you know, said that Ronald Reagan's attack on the air traffic controllers in 1982 was sort of the missing piece to what hit to his campaign, mm-hmm. right? In addition to the program of monetary austerity, there needed to be in Volcker's mind a full-scale confrontation with organized labor. Mm-hmm. So Volcker very much understood, you know, things in these terms. And into the 90s, you know, the Fed, you, you know, Fed minutes demonstrate that some of these central bankers are still quite concerned about developments in the labor movement. After the, you know, the UPS strike in 1997, there's talk within the Fed about whether this is going to mark a turning point. You know, are, is Volcker's victory going to be reversed or, or is the American working class starting to revive itself? So this this has been something that the you know central bankers think about today certainly powell is concerned with the wage what he sees as as dangerous wage pressure that could get more dangerous if expectations of inflation continue to persist whether he is whether he's thinking about it in terms of you know the organizing that we've been seeing mm-hmm. and the strike and strike threats that we've been seeing 
It's hard to say. I, I suspect given, you know, how much time has passed and given how many hits the labor movement has taken, it's not front of mind to the same way that it was in the past, mm-hmm. even in the even in 1997, when there was still living memory, you know, among a lot of central bankers of a more, um, you know, powerful labor movement. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think we can really separate any of this. There's wage pressure. There's low unemployment. There's organizing activity. There's strike threats. I mean, I'm sure I would not at all be surprised if the rail, you know, the threatened rail strike is something that they're talking about <laughs> right. right now. Right. You know, like this is it's all part of the same kind of environment that they're concerned about. And and you know, I don't, again, just in the spirit of kind of pushing back against the Fed as villains model, I don't think that Volk or that Powell, you know, I, I, I think you, maybe we could believe that he's sincere in saying, look, I don't want to create massive pain for workers. He may, he may really, you know, feel that, mm-hmm. but, but he's, but he's willing to, you know, and, it, and, it, and if, if, if it takes higher and higher rates that create a deep recession, he's willing He's, he'd prefer that to the alternative. Mm-hmm. So let's maybe wrap up on this question of making the Fed not villains. Uh, and, and that's another way of saying, you know, what could a kind of left monetary policy agenda right now look like? And and a follow up, I, I feel like I have to ask is, you know, given that the Fed is not exactly a democratic institution, um, Samir, how exactly <laughs> do we go about uh, how do we read the Fed? <laughs> that right. That's the that's the multi trillion dollar question. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, let's uh, let's put it this way, right? Like we want to see big public investment in mm-hmm. the United States. We want a Green New Deal. We want Medicare for all. We want more public housing. Right. These are things that we need, and we have to be clear, right, that this kind of investment to meet the climate crisis does bring about the risk of generating inflationary pressure on its own, left on its own terms, right? The same way that in 1945, a full employment policy did bring on its own, bring the risk of inflation. Same same holds today. So the question then is, how do we control inflation? Let's just put that to the side for one second. But setting, you know, we can come back to that. Any kind of major investment program like the one we need, which does, again, introduce potential inflationary risks, also requires that the federal government be able to finance the investment, mm-hmm. right? It's got, I mean, taxes are going to need to be a part of the equation, but so is credit. And in order for the government to borrow at reasonable rates that it can service through taxation over time, it's got to have a Fed that is cooperating with it in in making that happen. And we sort of saw a version of this early in the pandemic, right? The Fed was, I mean, took enormous steps in in 2020 to facilitate, to stabilize credit conditions Mm -hmm. and to ensure that all of the government spending through the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan could be financed in a reasonable way. This, the, the fact, the Fed's position, you know, really from 2008 through 2020 is, I think, an important part of the context in which the Biden administration even thinks that things like Build Back Better are possible, right? Large-scale investment like that, that's largely deficit finance, is possible in the Biden administration's mind because the Fed is going to be able, is going to be cooperating with them. Now, that's changed, right? So I, I think, you know, what would a progressive central bank look like is one that sees the its responsibility not as combating inflation in the first place, but as supporting the federal government's efforts to invest in the things that we need, and then 
Separate from that, we need a real inflation control program, perhaps modeled on the World War II model, right, that does take seriously the fact that there is pressure that needs to be managed. And the question then becomes, on in whose interest is it managed? Is it managed at the expense of profits? Is it managed at the expense of wages? And if it is managed at the expense of profits, then how do we compensate for that? Insofar as we live in a capitalist society, profitability is what encourages investment. And if we're going to control profits, we have to confront the possibility that investment may not be forthcoming from private investors the way that we might need. And if that's the case, that brings us back to the need for government investment. And if we need government investment, that takes us back to how is the government going to finance it and the role of the Fed. So all of this is wound up together. But ultimately, the question of what a progressive Fed looks like is about, you know, it's what we want and what the Fed's priority should be Mm -hmm. in relation to what we want. Now, the question of how we get the Fed to do that is a different one. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is the case, right, that the Fed is quite undemocratic. Right there, you know, they're the board members are meeting right now in private and they're not even going to tell us what they talked about for a little while. And they're going to, you know, they're going to raise interest rates by 0.75% tomorrow. And that's going to, you know, on top of a couple similar hikes over previous months. And that is going to have some kind of effect on all of our lives. And so we, we can't, we can't influence that, right? We just simply don't have the power to influence that. But I think what the historical, you know, story tells us is that there are times where the Fed will respond to changing political conditions. I, also, it's worth saying, as undemocratic as the Fed is, you know, it is, the, the board is appointed by, you know, Powell's appointed by Biden. He was appointed by Trump in the first place. These are presidential appointees. They serve six-year terms. It's less in, undemocratic than the Supreme Court, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, it is a more influenceable entity than the court. And and even even given that, you know, within that six-year term, we don't have a lot of control over them. Again, the, the history reminds us that, in certain times, under certain political conditions, mm-hmm. the Fed will or can be pushed to act in ways that, you know, align with what we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, again, Samir's article is called Red the Fed. That's in the latest print issue of Jacobin. And I think it's up on the web now or should be soon. Uh, Samir, that was extremely enlightening. Uh, it's a great article. I uh, recommend everybody read it. Thanks so much for your time and great to see you as always. Thanks for having me, Jen. It's a pleasure.